In this episode, we begin to revisit the foundations of the polyvagal theory from Dr. Stephen Porges. My name is Justin Sinceri. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I am obsessed with the polyvagal theory. Welcome to Stuck Not Broken. Throughout this episode, you'll be hearing from a couple other people, and those people are Dr. Stephen Porges and Deb Dana. Dr. Stephen Porges created the polyvagal theory, and Deb Dana is a therapist who's a very big name in the polyvagal theory space. I had done interviews with both of them on the podcast already, so I took some of the audio samples from that that I thought could add some clarity or just some weight to what I was saying here. So we are revisiting the foundational polyvagal theory elements to begin a brand new series. We'll be spending a number of episodes on this, but in this episode, I'm going to be covering the autonomic nervous system, the polyvagal ladder, the vagus nerve, neuroception. There's a lot in this one episode, but this is really fundamental, foundational to understanding what's coming next. There's also, I have some resources that go along with this and all parts of the upcoming Polyvagal 101 series. If you go to the file share on justinlmft.com, that's my website, justinlmft.com, there's something called a file share with all kinds of resources. I have a whole slideshow. I have one pagers uh, that cover the foundational elements of the polyvagal theory that you can use for whatever purpose you need to just give them out in class or for your own reference. But there is a file share on justinlmft.com that has um, a lot of this stuff in it in a condensed form as well. But before I go further into this episode, please put yourself first. I keep every episode as safe as I can, but just by the nature of this, I can almost guarantee something's going to come up for you. So you may experience some stuff come up. Please take a break if you need to. This episode, again, it's probably going to bring some stuff up for you. This podcast is not therapy, nor is it intended to be a replacement for therapy. Topic number one when it comes to the polyvagal theory and is really, we have to get this down before understanding anything else, and that is the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system controls the body's internal environments, all the stuff that you don't have to think about. Breathing, heart rate, hormone release, sweating, pupil dilation, digestion, salivation, and a whole bunch more. There's all the stuff you don't have to think about. No one is thinking about their pupil dilation. Like, do you have any idea how much your pupils are or are not dilated right now? Right. I mean, do you have any idea what is going on with your digestion? Maybe you can feel it, but you don't guide that, right? You don't think about these things. Breathing, you kind of can, but really, moment to moment, no one is thinking about planning their breathing, typically, right? I think that what's really important about the autonomic nervous system is that, yeah, it does control the body's internal environment without conscious thought, but the autonomic nervous system can actually be used for different purposes. So we have three basic states that the autonomic nervous system governs through biological pathways. The first one is the ventral vagal safe and social state, and that governs social engagement. This is one of the parasympathetic branches. The second one is the sympathetic flight-fight pathways, and that's responsible for mobilization. And the last one is the second parasympathetic system, and that is the dorsal vagal shutdown, which, is, which governs the uh, immobilization response. We have then these different biological pathways within the autonomic nervous system that are responsible for responding to various levels of safety or danger. So if, we, if we're safe, great, and we utilize those pathways. If not, we then utilize our mobilization pathways. And if that's not going to be successful, then we utilize our immobilization pathways. 
But none of this is a choice. And I think this is really important to stress that this is not a choice. It's our autonomic nervous system. So this is outside of our conscious control. So we don't shift these states. We don't shift from so social engagement to flight fight because we're choosing to. Like right now, you can probably experience that actually because if you, if you close your eyes and think about a spider hanging behind you by its web, you might feel a shift within you right now. You might feel a little bit more tense. Your breathing might pause for a moment, if you're like me at least. But if you don't react, that's also out of your choice. If you did react though, and you did hold your breath, or you did feel a little bit of fear, those are autonomic shifts happening within you that you did not control. You simply responded to the stimulus of the image of a spider hanging behind you. And if that doesn't work for you, then just imagine whatever thing that scares you behind you, right? You'll, you'll have some sort of reaction to that. Every behavior is in service of survival. Everything is in service of survival, no matter how crazy it looks. <laughs> Your nervous system has enacted something because it's, it's trying to keep you alive. So if we could start there. All of these autonomic responses are about survival. This is supposed to happen. We're supposed to shift from our safety pathways to our mobilization system. And if that doesn't work, we're supposed to shift into the immobilization system, the shutdown state, because it increases the chances of survival. All of these states increase the chances of survival. And I'm going to go into these uh, more later on. But I think it's important right now just to realize that the autonomic nervous system, I mean, just the basic idea so far, autonomic nervous system is something that's out of our conscious control. It increases, it, it shifts to increase our chances of survival. So it shifts behavioral states. It shifts biological pathways that, that are responsible for behavioral states. It shifts outside of our conscious control. It shifts automatically and it shifts to increase the chances of survival. So it's supposed to happen. And if you think about it, this is pretty darn important because it really makes daily living and surviving possible for all mammals. This is a mammalian thing, not just a human thing. This is a mammalian thing, and it really makes survival possible. Mammals are able to socially engage. We're able to be in families or in herds or be able to build tribes. And it makes daily living possible. We don't have to stop and think about our heartbeat, right? I mean, if it wasn't autonomic, like think about it, we would have to think about all these processes that I listed, like breathing and heart rate and hormone release. We'd have to somehow consciously be aware of that and plan it out in real time, all at the same time. You know what I mean? So I, I, if, it's, if it wasn't autonomic, I don't know how long we would last if we had to consciously control this. We'd have to think about how much to tense our muscles when we're in danger or how much to sweat or if to sweat at all. We'd have to think about uh, how to, you know, what rate to increase our heartbeat to, how to adjust our breathing. And not just in that moment, but moment to moment, we'd have to know when to calm things down and speed things up. The autonomic nervous system is really good at that. It does that for us so we don't have to consciously do that. And that allows us to use our thinking minds for other things. And that's not always helpful, but, but we have the opportunity at least to use our thinking potential to make lives better for humans and other species in the world itself. I've already laid out the primary 
autonomic nervous system states. And that, again, is the safe and social state, the flight fight state, or the shutdown state, or and the shutdown state. These are the primary autonomic states. Just like we have primary colors, you can mix those to make secondary colors, like yellow, blue, and red are the primary colors, but you can mix those to make other colors. So we do have other states, some mixed states, and that's something I'm going to talk about in a future episode. But for right now, we're working with the primary states or the primary colors, if, if you want to have a metaphor for it. Our primary state, whether it's safe and social, flight, fight, or shutdown, our primary state is going to be a reaction to a few different things. And one of those is the outside environment. And that could be a dangerous environment or a dangerous person, a loud sound, dark lighting, or even positive people and happy people and safe environments. Our autonomic state is going to be a reaction to whatever environment, whatever literal environment that we're in. That's going to be a reaction to the, really the sensory experiences of the of this environment, the exterior, the outside environment, the way the environment sounds, the way that it looks, the way that it smells. All of these sensory inputs are going to trigger our autonomic nervous system to shift into social behaviors or flight fight behavior or shutdown behavior. But it's also a reaction to the internal environment. And what that means is that we can actually shift state based on what's happening within us. This could be something like chronic illness. It's being, being chronically ill might put someone in more of a defensive state. Living in that condition, whatever it is, living in that con- condition might really take them out of their potential to be in their safe and social state and to socially engage and have to feel happy and to feel positive. It might put them in more of a defensive state. When we're in pain, our capacity to socially engage with each other is probably a lot less, right? If you bang your knee on something, you're not going to smile about it. You're not going to be you know, laughing and connecting with the person next to you. No, you'll, you'll be in pain and probably have some defensive energy within you. Or if we're hungry, if you get hungry enough, like if you don't eat and you get hungry enough, you become hangry, right? That fight system kind of comes on to make you get food. The autonomic nervous system can also be in response to the interpersonal environment. That's person to person. This, is, this counts as environmental, but I think it's worth differentiating. The interpersonal environment is going to be between two or more people. And there's going to be cues of danger in big ways and small ways between two or more people. I'm going to go more into this when we talk about co-regulation later on. But basically, between two people, there's going to be cues of danger and cues of safety in big ways and small ways. It could be something as simple as looking at a cell phone. But it could also be something as big as like outward aggression. Both of these things might have an impact on the other person that shifts their state, at least momentarily, that shifts their state out of safety, out of social engagement. And like even with the cell phone, if someone looks at their cell phone while you're talking to them, your capacity to feel socially engaged is diminished, at least in that moment. It can be fixed. It's not a huge deal. But it does take you out of your social engagement pathways, at least just for that moment. Our autonomic nervous system state can also be a response to our perceptions of all of these things, to the interpersonal, the internal, or the outside environment, to our perceptions of it. And our perceptions might not be an accurate reflection of the real world. It's, it's sort of our, sub, our subjective 
filter of the world in a way. For example, a football fan, their reaction to something that happens in a game, a football game, is a lot different than someone who's not a fan. So if you're watching football with someone who's like way into it and you're not, whatever happens on the screen for them is going to take them into or out of their social engagement system. It's going to take them more into their defensive flight fight energy or even in a shutdown if, uh, if it's a disastrous event like the 49ers losing the past two Super Bowl appearances. Something like that might take someone out of their social engagement system and into their defensive energy. But for you, if you're not into football, it's like your perception of this, this is not a big deal. So it has no effect on you. When it really, what it comes down to is like one group of men scoring more points than another group <laughs> might mean nothing to you. But for other people, it's devastating, like for me. Or a Star Wars fan is much different than a non-Star Wars fan when it comes to watching those terrible sequel trilogy movies. They're awful, genuinely upsetting due to its awfulness. But for someone who's not in Star Wars, they could care less and they just want to enjoy the movie. For those of us who are way into Star Wars, we are basically personally offended by how bad those movies are. I was talking uh, in therapy with uh, one of my student clients. I work at a public school. He lived in a neighborhood that was definitely not uh, on the safe side. It was more on the dangerous side. He was outside playing uh, catch with his friends, throwing a football back and forth. And he he heard a gunshot. And for him, his perception of a gunshot was way different than mine. In my neighborhood, that's not something that we hear, I don't think, ever. So if I'm in his neighborhood, just even imagining it, if I hear a gunshot, I'm going to get in my car and leave, or I'm going to go in that, in, to a house or somewhere safe. But for him, for his perception of gunshots and for his perception of the safety of his neighborhood, of his neighborhood and what that meant to him as far as his danger, his perception was a lot different. For him, it was like, well, it's not about me. Someone else, that's about somebody else. So for myself or for maybe even you, if we hear that, we react a certain way. For him, he didn't. It didn't trigger his defensive energy, whereas it would trigger defensive energy for somebody else. His perception of it was, was different. These autonomic nervous system states, the, the primary ones that we've talked about here so far, these are reactions to the outside world, to the internal world, the in, interpersonal world, but also our perceptions of these. And these primary autonomic nervous system states become the filter that we experience the world through. These are not just states that we're in momentarily and then we're out of it. We, we can actually stay in these states for quite a long time. And while we're in these states, we experience the world in significantly different ways. If we're in the safe and social state, we're going to experience the world in a much more positive hopeful, empathetic kind of way. If we're in a shutdown state, we're going to experience the world as probably a lot more hopeless. We're going to view ourselves as worthless. We're not going to feel much hope. We're not going to feel much of anything. It's a very disconnected state. We bring those filters to all of our interactions with people and with companies and with family members and school, and our workplaces, or whatever, we bring those everywhere we go. It is the filter that we experience the world through. It's also possible to become stuck in these defensive states that I'm talking about. 
the flight fight sympathetic or the shutdown parasympathetic, it's possible to become stuck in those defensive states. When we talk about trauma, that's really what we're talking about. When trauma is not the event or the lack of events that left us in a stuck defensive state. It's not the event. It's the stuck defensive state. It's the inability to get back up into the safe and social state. That's what trauma is. It's the impact of the event, not the event itself. I hope you don't mind me pausing here real quick to tell you about something called Building Safety Anchors. It's a course that I created grounded in the polyvagal theory, grounded in the somatic pieces of our well-being, of our, of our mental health. The goal with Building Safety Anchors is to feel safe. It's to help you to feel what it feels like to be safe, to discover what brings you to safety. It's a 30-day course. It has six exclusive learning modules, uh, 45 minutes of audio. It has printable and downloadable PDFs, some worksheets in there. It's called Building Safety Anchors. There's a link down below in in the description. There's a metaphor for all this autonomic nervous system stuff, and it's called the polyvagal ladder. This is from Deb Dana. She's a therapist that applied polyvagal theory to therapy. And she has a couple books out. One of her metaphors that she uses is the polyvagal ladder. This is a metaphor for how the autonomic nervous system is stacked in the body. It's the hierarchy of these states and how it's built inside the body. So I want you to picture a ladder. At the top of the ladder are the ventral vagal pathways, which control the safe and social state or the safe and social behaviors. That's at the top of the ladder. And that mirrors our body because that's the, those pathways live in our head, neck, and are connected to the heart. In the middle of the ladder, so underneath the safe, safety state, in the middle of the ladder is the flight, fight, sympathetic pathways. And those pathways live in the chest. They govern arms and leg usage. And at the bottom of this polyvagal ladder is the dorsal vagal shut down pathways. Those live in the gut. You'll feel those in your gut when something's not quite right. You'll feel that shutdown system come on. The ladder is, that's how it looks, but it's also a great metaphor because in order to access these different biological pathways, these different states, we have to go up and down the ladder in sequential order. We don't skip. Again, this is not a choice. We're not choosing from a, a menu of options. No, we're going through a sequence of events. So if we can't exist in our safe and social state at the top of the ladder, we drop down the ladder into our flight fight system. And in that order, flight first and then fight. If we can't run away from whatever it is, then we fight. But if we can't fight, then we drop down further to the bottom of the polyvagal ladder into our shutdown pathways, our shutdown state. And this is where we immobilize. So if we can't be safe, then we run. If we can't run, then we fight. If we can't fight, then we immobilize, we collapse. And again, all of these are about increasing the likelihood of surviving, you know, whatever, whatever's happening. But that, that is the sequence of events from top to bottom. Now, likewise, if we want to go up into our safety state, we actually have to go through each rung of the ladder. Uh, back up. 
So from our shutdown immobilization, we have to come out of that up the ladder into our flight fight energy, but it's fight first. So we have to have a sympathetic fight surge and then up into our flight energy. And that is also a sympathetic state. And then up into our safety state. Now, do this, does this look the same for everyone? Does it feel the same? Does it have the same intensity? No, all that's very subjective um, case by case. But that's the basic biological hierarchy and sequence of events that mammals go through. We've covered autonomic nervous system. We have covered autonomic states. We've covered the polyvagal ladder. But what about the vagus nerve itself? This is, if you've spent any time learning about polyvagal theory outside of this podcast, you may read or see or hear people talking about hacking the vagus nerve or stimulating the vagus nerve. But I don't think that's quite the issue here. That's not the goal when it comes to best utilizing the knowledge of the polyvagal theory. Dr. Porges calls the vagus nerve a conduit. It's not the thing that we're addressing in and of itself. So when it comes to trauma healing or self-regulation or just anchoring yourself in the present moment, stimulating the vagus nerve is not the goal. Take away this uh, intelligence to the nerve and understand, think more in terms of feedback loop. Really, the brainstem is the key to all this. And the, as I listen to Dr. Porges, that's what I get out of it. So the vagus nerve is a conduit. It, it sends the signals, but it's not the primary focus. We're more interested in the feedback loop of brain to body or brainstem through the vagus nerve to the bodily organs and muscles. And then what those organs and muscles are sending back up through the vagus nerve to the brainstem. It's, it's a communication loop. That's what we're interested in. It's not the vagus nerve in and of itself. The majority of the communication is actually from the body up to the brain, not the brain to the body. We put a lot of emphasis on brain stuff, right? But the majority of the communication, I think it's like 80% of the fibers that are going up through the vagus nerve, 80% of that communication is going to be from the body to the brain. The vagus nerve is a conduit. It's a wire. That's not what we're really concerned about. We're concerned about the regulator that's sending signals through that wire and the impact of uh, those signals to the target organs and then the target organs through the sensory part of the vagus sending signals back to the brain. So we're more concerned with the feedback loop between organ and brainstem that's going through the vagus than the nerve itself. Mm. So we get caught up, and we, the term I use uh, is that we start giving executive function, decision-making right. properties right. to the nerve, and mm. we're literally um, obfuscating, blinding, covering up the real process, which is really regulatory system that is a feedback to between brainstem structures and actually lower body or bodily organs. The communication is what's important. It's the communication of safety or danger from brain to body and body to brain. That's what's important. The, the vagus nerve is just the conduit. It's just the, the pathway that the information is being sent through. This is not about hacking or stimulating the vagus nerve. The brainstem is the key point that triggers the autonomic nervous system into different behaviors. 
and also triggers the brain into different uh, possibilities. So if we are detecting danger in the environment, we detect that through our senses. Whatever we're detecting through the senses the, it goes in the brainstem. The brainstem, I don't like the word decides, but the, the brainstem decides based on that information what level of safety or danger that we're in. If it decides that we're in danger, it's going to reduce our potential for things like critical thinking and empathy. It's also going to reduce our potential for getting close to other people or breathing in a relaxed way. So it affects the brain, it affects the body, but the brain stem is really the key point in this and what we're bringing in from the outside and how we're deciphering safety or danger. And the brain stem is where the regulation of our bodily state occurs and the effect of our bodily state goes up and affects our brain stem. And our brain stem now, on top of it, has all these other brain structures, but those brain structures, what they can do, are in part limited by the state that the brain stem is in. There's a name for this that Dr. Portis created. It's called neuroception. Dr. Portis created this word, neuroception, to explain the phenomena of these hardwired autonomic shifts within the mammalian organism. Hardwired is the key here. There are predictable ways or even universal ways that, he, that mammals react based on le various levels of safety and danger. That doesn't mean it looks the same for all of us. There's a wide variety of what that can look like. But the mammalian organism, you as a living organism, have hardwired responses within you based on what your senses are detecting. This is similar to, for like, a, I don't like comparing to computer, but it's the best analogy I think we have. For a computer, if you press a certain button, it has a certain response, right? It's similar, not exactly the same, but very similar for humans or all mammals. I guess all animals, but we're focusing on mammals as well for, for this. We have these hardwired autonomic shifts that take place within us simply as an organism that is primed to survive and always scanning for the potential to survive. So the information comes in through the five senses. Primitive parts of the brain evaluate for safety or danger or life threat. These responses are unconscious. They are biologically hardwired. Again, this is not a choice. So we're hardwired to respond to some stimuli in a certain ways, but Again, not going to look the same for everybody. For things like the sound of somebody's voice, it's called prosody, vocal prosody. If somebody has a lot of prosody in their voice, like a, a, the sing-songy quality of their voice, like right now I can kind of go up and I can go down. Me being able to use a larger or wider range of my voice probably is giving you a neuroception of safety. So you're neurocepting that myself, even though you're just hearing my voice, you're neurocepting that Justin is a safe mammal. And that might help you in your autonomic nervous system to get to the top of your polyvagal ladder and to feel safer, safer. This is different for something like monotone voices, which are typically a neuroception of danger. For example, if I lost all vocal prosody and just talk like this, and I taught you about the polyvagal theory, you might not feel 
very safe in or at the top of your polyvagal ladder. Ugh, that was hard to do. Sorry about that. You might notice there was a shift there as I spoke in a monotone, slow voice versus my more prosodic voice, which I am speaking with now, more or less. You didn't choose to respond the way you responded, right? You just did. You have these responses built within you. Let's do a quick thought experiment here. And I want you to uh, close your eyes. If you're driving, don't, don't do that. You can still use your imagination, though. Close your eyes and picture somebody who has wide eyes. Their muscles are tense. Their head and their neck are just straight looking at you. And they're just looking straight ahead at you. Where, how do you feel about that? Does that bring you to feeling more safe or more in a defensive feelings or state? Wide eyes, stiff muscles, looking dead on. Now compare that to a baby that's cooing and smiling and giggling and they are looking at you in the eyes. Would that bring you to feelings of safety or of defense? It's, it would be a different experience, right? So depending on what we are neurocepting as safe or dangerous or a life threat, depending on what we're neurocepting, our own social or defensive behaviors are going to be triggered. As we drop down or climb up the ladder, the potential for safe and social behaviors and the potential for defensive behaviors, are it changes. When we're in a flight-fight state, we don't need social behavior. So that stuff kind of get more or less gets turned off. Neuroception is the body's ability. It's, I mean, in my opinion, it's pretty darn amazing. It's the body's ability to detect risk outside of our conscious awareness. Now, again, like just think about if we had to consciously be deciding safety or danger the fact that it's autonomic allows us to quickly shift state and respond, hopefully appropriately. Neuroception shifts our autonomic state up and down the polyvagal ladder to, to those three different primary states, basically. As we move down the ladder, we're going to lose access to the behaviors that are higher up the ladder. But what it does is it unlocks defensive behaviors, which is actually really cool. So it's kind of like a key. If we neurocept, in my opinion, if we neurocept danger, we drop down the polyvagal ladder, we lose access to our social behaviors, but it unlocks the capacity to run and fight. You know, if you're sitting there right now and a tiger walks in the room, I don't know why, it just does. Your ability to neurocept that as dangerous, and I really hope you do, to neurocept that as dangerous shift down your polyvagal ladder into your flight energy is going to potentially increase the chances of you surviving because that's going to unlock your capacity to probably have a big old adrenaline rush and get the heck out of there. You're not going to need to pet the tiger, right? You're not going to need to smile at them and use your own vocal prosody. No, you need to get out of that situation. So uh, that that's it's a adaptive it increases the chances of survival it's kind of a good thing but when it comes to neuroception you're probably thinking well i i don't respond 
to danger in the ways that I'd like to, I, I, or I don't detect safety in ways that I'd like to. Well, there, according to political theory, there are two, we can, we can kind of break down neuroception into, into healthy and unhealthy. With healthy neuroception, the body detects and shifts to the appropriate state based on, I'll say the environment. I mean, it's based on other things as well, but based on the environment, it detects and it shifts to the appropriate state based on the environment. The body uses safe and social behavior. It uses pro-social behavior in a safe environment. That makes sense, right? If you're in a safe environment, we should be able to access the top of our ladder and utilize our pro-social behavior. When we're in a safe environment, we do not use things like fighting or running away. That's only if we're actually in danger. So in a safe environment, we neurocept safety. We climb to the top of our autonomic, the political ladder, and we access our safe and social behaviors. With healthy neuroception, we're better at accurately identifying red flags and accurately identifying safety. We're able to, with healthy neuroception, we're able to feel safe with safe others, but we're also able to mobilize when we need to. We can access the defensive energy when we need to, or the defensive pathways uh, when necessary. But when people are safe, we're also able to access our safety pathways. Like if you go out on a date with your spouse, let's say, ideally we feel safe on the date with your spouse. But if there's danger, we also would be able to mobilize. That would be healthy neuroception, is that we're in a safe environment with someone we love, we're able to be and feel safe and access our social behaviors. But if something happens on that date, we're able to detect it and mobilize and, and get, get to safety. This is different than unhealthy neuroception. This is when the body does not accurately detect and does not shift state based on the environment that they're in. That means the body does not run away or does not fight when it is in an unsafe situation. The body does not use safe and social behavior in a safe environment. So there's like a mismatch. You're, you're in a safe environment but you're not accessing the safe and social pathways. Or you're in an environment that is dangerous, but you're not running away or fighting. That's called unhealthy neuroception. We're not accurately shifting state and not accurately detecting uh, safety or danger. This unhealthy neuroception, according to Dr. Porgerson, I completely agree, it makes complete sense to me. This may be at the core of many mental health disorders. Not being able to detect safety or not being able to access those safety pathways would leave somebody in a defensive state. They would leave them with that flight fight energy or that shutdown depletion, the collapse, that lack of energy. That could look like, well, many, many different uh, mental health disorders, right? I mean, a lot of the things from the DSM might be better explained by where somebody is at on their own political ladder and whether or not they have more or less healthy or unhealthy neuroception. With unhealthy neuroception, there's going to be a lot of missed red flags. I work with a lot of teens, and their ability to recognize danger in their love interests is like is very compromised. And as these teens tell me about their uh, their boyfriend or their girlfriend or their significant other, for me on my end, I hear what they're saying, and I'm red flags are going off for me, right, you know, left and right. But for them, they don't detect it. They don't neurocept the danger in these, in these uh, people that they're with or the environment that they're, that they're in. They don't neurocept that until 
they're in their own safe and social state and they're better able to identify it after, you know, therapy and I uh, explain, you know, this is what I'm hearing. And then they can be like, oh, yeah, now I see it. But only once they have access to their own safe and social state. And that would help them to detect safety or not, or unsafety. There's also an example that comes up a lot uh, in therapy. Again, I work with teens and I hear fairly often about a mom that was sexually abused that then allows their short-term boyfriend to move in with them and the teen that I'm working with or the children. That sexually abused mom, their neuroception, their ability to detect safety or danger in their partner is severely compromised. So having that person move in, they're not picking up on how dangerous that could be, that short-term boyfriend or, or love interest. They're not detecting the danger in that. For you, you might be into yoga. And being still in yoga can be, it actually, it can feel like danger. It can feel like, well, like unsafety, even though it's literally safe, right? It actually is safe, but that individual is having some challenges with neurocepting safety and they stay in that defensive state, even though it is literally a safe environment with safe people. But certain poses or the shavasana, I believe it's called, at the end of class where they have to lay down and be still, that, even though it's safe, literally, they might not be able to neurocept the safety in there and climb and at the top of the ladder and actually uh, do it and feel safe at the same time. Kids in class that can't sit still and are more concerned about who's saying what and who's looking at who and that like that, they're not able to detect safety, even though classrooms are typically safe. Not all, of course not, I know that. But typically, classrooms have safe people, or safe enough. They're safe environments with safe teachers, right? Safe adults. Literally. But the student's capacity to detect that is it's just compromised. The final concept that I want to go into here before we delve further into the political theory in future episodes is the concept of story follow state. This is again from Deb Dana. Story follow state is the idea that our thoughts reflect what state, what autonomic state that we are in. Polyvagal theory in, in the clinical world is a paradigm shift. So we're asking people to, to look at things differently. And one of the things is that story follows state, that your autonomic state comes to life and then it, the information is fed up to your brain. And your brain's job is to make sense of what's happening in the body. So it makes up a story. And the stories that emerge from dorsal, sympathetic, and ventral are very different. This highlights the idea that our thoughts don't simply exist on their own. The story in our heads, our thoughts, the story follows the state that we're in. If we're in a safe and social state, our thoughts are going to be more hopeful. Our thoughts are going to involve more critical thinking and planning and problem solving. If we're in a flight-fight state, that sympathetic flight-fight energy, our thoughts are not going to have much empathy. They're going to be more fear-based. There's going to be more about blaming or avoiding responsibility. Our thoughts are going to be more about who's out to get us. It won't be anything empathetic. It won't be uh, about uh, slowing down and thinking critically. It's going to be highly reactionary. The thoughts in the shutdown state 
are going to be kind of uh, hopeless. They're not going to, those thoughts are going to be very judgmental toward the self, especially. And we're still not going to be able to access things like critical thinking and weighing pros and cons and being able to see someone else's viewpoint. All that, all those skills are kind of lost more more, or at least compromised more or less. So you can see how the story changes depending on my state, not depending on what I choose to think. The story that follows the state might not be a reflection of reality. So someone who's in a very shut down state who has stories in their head about how worthless they are, that might not be a reality. And in my opinion, it's just not a reality. So the story that follows the state might be wrong. When we're in that fight energy and we're blaming whoever it is for our problems, that might not be correct. It could be, but not necessarily. And once we're in our safe and social state, you've probably experienced this where you're you know, really upset one moment or really anxious one moment. And then later on that day, or maybe after you sleep and you wake up the next day, you look back at the same situation and you just, you feel differently about it. You think differently about it because you're possibly not in that defensive state anymore. You possibly have more access to that safe and social state. And now when you reflect on the same situation, it just, your thoughts are different. It's, it just changes because your state has changed. The story fall state, it's, it's an attempt really to explain what just happened. It's an attempt to explain why our state is the way it is. I'm pissed off because of that person. I'm scared because of this situation. I feel this way because I'm worthless. It's an attempt to explain what's happening within us. So it it reflects what's happening within us. It follows it. And it's trying to explain what just happened or why we we feel the way we feel. I remember this uh, one night a couple years ago where I was not quite asleep. I was pretty close to sleep. And in my room, the lights were off. Outside of the room, I think we had like a whole light on for the kids. And I saw a shadow. The shadow crept toward, I could, it, it was only, it was just for a moment, but the shadow moved toward my room. Okay, so it was, it was just the briefest of moments, but the shadow was moving toward my, the room. Middle of the night. My body, I could feel neurocepted danger. My muscles tensed. I held my breath. My heartbeat picked up a little bit. So I shifted my state unconsciously into a flight fight kind of sympathetic energy. But then in my head, an image popped in my brain of a burglar. So the story in my mind was burglar, someone's robbing the house, right? Story follows state. The state changed first without me being aware of it. And then the image of the burglar popped in my mind. It ended up being my son. If, if you have a kid, they often do very scary things at nighttime when you're trying to sleep. So that's what it ended up being. It was fine. I also, I remember I had this uh, procedure done, which I'm not going to go into. <laughs> but I had a procedure done where I was awake, numb but awake. And during the procedure, something happened. There was, a, so, I don't know what the heck he was doing. Carterizing or something like that, but I felt 
in my body, I felt this shock. It felt like either a burn or some sort of electrical uh, spark. I don't know. But it was painful. The idea is, is painful. That's the basic idea. So there was the pain. My my heart rate kicked way up. And this is, again, it's just instantaneous. Heartbeat picked up. Muscles flexed. I know this because I was laying on the hospital bed, the surgical bed, or procedural bed. I don't know what you call it. And when I felt that heat or that spark, whatever it was, my body basically folded in half. Like my torso went up, my legs went up, kind of like, you know, like a, it's folding in half. So my body responded instantaneously, shifted state, tensed up, and I know it was a fight state because I couldn't run away from this. I was in a procedure. And I know my body went into more of a fight state in that very brief moment. I also know this because the story that popped in my mind, the words that popped in my mind and came out of my mouth was, what the f***? <laughs> Definitely fight energy. Like, what are you doing? What, what is happening down there? <laughs> so it, we're talking about instantaneous, tiny moments of time where we're neurocepting safety or danger or life threat. And then our, bo- our autonomic nervous system shifts, our body re- is responding, it feels different, the experience is different, and our thoughts change as well. Tiny moments of time that can get stretched out and we can get kind of stuck. Again, we can get stuck in these. Certain feedback loops or, or defense strategies can literally be stuck because uh, they were there. So the, the bottom line is to think about feedback loops and ask the question, is the autonomic nervous system in the state of defense? I know this is a lot of information and we're really just laying some foundations here for what's coming next. We, we gotta go deeper into all of these states. We gotta go deeper into what trauma is. We gotta go deeper on what the heck do we do about all this? So we have a long way to go and this is a lot, I know. This is what I want you to take away from all this, okay? The, the political theory is a new paradigm, and this is what I love about it. It's, it's important to me to convey useful information that enable people to understand who they are as human beings. There's almost a strange metaphor. It's like when, say, um, batteries not included – in human beings, the manual wasn't included. Right. And, and so it's really a, a retrospective development of a manual of what it is to be a human being. And we polyvagal theory has some of these features. It brings a new paradigm to you, to mental health. And to me, it's in, it fits along with the DSM. But in my opinion, it's a different paradigm, and I think it's a more useful one. It's a way to look at us, and if you're a therapist, a way to look at your clients as an issue of being stuck in a defensive state versus having some sort of disorder. I, I think what you would find is that it really doesn't matter what the diagnosis is, that they share some common features. And the common features have to do with state regulation. And in fact, the manifestation, whether it's DID or borderline, has to do with the strategy that the higher brain structures developed to regulate their state. Polyvagal theory also brings with it a roadmap of change because we have the polyvagal ladder, so we kind of have some milestones of what change looks like. It's not a therapeutic modality in and of itself, but it is a way 
to track change and to understand change, but also understand ourselves as therapists, to understand ourselves as parents or as teachers and whatever role we have. It's a new way of looking at us and our, and our interactions. I really want to stress, in my opinion here, there is way more utility of the political theory in our lives than other paradigms of mental health and relationships and, and whatnot. There's more utility with, in my opinion, far less judgment. This is not, there's no judgment in this. This is just biology. It's just biology. That's it. So if we can learn the new paradigm of the political theory, and I, and I hope that you're buying into this and you want to get more because we got, I got a lot more coming. If we can buy into the political theory as a new paradigm and then apply that paradigm to ourselves, that can create a, a new narrative. So if we have these feelings. What do we make of those feelings? How do we, how do we use those feelings to create a, a reality? And the, the issue is the personal narrative. When This is where polyvagal theory became useful to many people with a variety of disorders. It enabled them to inform their personal narrative that functionally there was a, a reason why they were experiencing these things. And then a different reality would start. In a sense, it was a self-healing process. If the higher brain structures, our cognitive, our sense of awareness becomes attuned to what's going on in our body. And that makes sense in a psychoeducational way. Then it mm -hmm. creates a container on top of those feelings. So the polyvagal theory can be a new narrative for you in understanding yourself, understanding how you feel, why you are the way you are, why you aren't the way you aren't without judgment. It just, it is what it is for now. And it's an issue of being stuck potentially and not broken. Once again, though, I do have polyvagal resources on my website. I have these one pagers that are just easy to download or print, hand them out to, to uh, clients, hand them out to classes you're teaching, whatever it is. There are these one pagers with just some basic bare bones information on polyvagal theory. I've also got something on, on my website called Polyvagal 101. It's kind of like a companion to this, but it's, it's a page that has more links. To, to the resources that I have, links to blog articles, links to podcast episodes that are relevant. So it's kind of like the hub of the polyvagal theory and everything that I'm putting together. JustinLMFT.com. My goal there is to make that like the resource guide for the polyvagal theory in, in a very easy under, to understand way that anybody can get. Thank you so much for listening. I know this is a long episode. We're laying the foundations here. We've got a long way to go. I hope that through this episode, you've learned something new to help you climb your own polyvagal ladder. Bye. This podcast is not therapy, not intended to be therapy or be a replacement for therapy. Nothing in this creates or indicates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek for one in your area if you're experiencing mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed to be specific life advice. It's for educational and entertainment purposes only. More resources are available in the description of this episode and in the footer of justinlmft.com.